Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. It's mountainous. Um, we're adjacent to one of the prettiest wilderness areas in the, in the country, the Snowmass Maroon Bells Wilderness. Auden Schendler has some pretty amazing views from his office. But then Colorado is home to spectacular natural scenery and some of the world's best skiing. So we've got rivers and mountains, and it's an interesting kind of nexus of alpine and high desert, actually. And when Auden got a job in this paradise, tasked with making the Aspen Skiing Company more sustainable, he thought he knew exactly how to do it. Your climate solution as a business would be to reduce your carbon footprint. It would be profitable. And if you did that, others would follow because it's just good business. And we would be able to solve the, a piece of the climate problem that way. Auden was, if you like, an early adopter of the E in ESG, the environmental, social and governance issues that are now reshaping the corporate world. He'd start easy. Or so he thought, because what could be easier than replacing light bulbs? Specifically, the light bulbs at Aspen Skiing's five-star hotel, the Little Nell. These are extremely luxurious places. So you have chandeliers and you have 15 light bulbs in a room and they're all, they're beautiful, they're incandescent and they're using a ton of energy. So my thesis was, hey, this is this great opportunity to rapidly save money, come in, be a hero, and and show everyone that this is a business move. It's not just a hippie sustainability move. Auden sat down with Little Nell's hotel manager. The new bulbs wouldn't just save energy, he explained. They'd also be cheaper to run. There'd be a big return on investment. And he said, Auden, this isn't a Motel 6, this is a five-star hotel. My guests don't want compact fluorescent curly Q light bulbs in their room with bright white light that makes them feel like they're in an operating room or a janitor's closet. We're not going to do it. But Auden wasn't about to give up. If not the bedrooms, how about the hallways? Now, these lights are on all the time. The guest, you know, isn't spending a lot of time in the hallways. Let's change those out. The return on investment is bigger. We won't have this customer-facing problem as much. The hotel manager still said no. What about the hotel garage then, Auden asked, a place he imagined no guest or auditor would ever go. And the hotel manager said, how much is it going to cost? I said, $20,000. And he said, if I have $20,000, I'm going to buy more wine for our wine collection or better sheets or upgrade the rooms because you might save me ten or $20,000 a year in energy, I can make that in a night. This story has sort of defined my career in a lot of ways. But for me, the, the shock um, was that the dogma was wrong, right? The notion that you can do this profitably, it's good for the environment and the bottom line, 
that that ran up against a bunch of reality. And what I said was, look, if I can't do the most basic thing in sustainability, how is this work actually going to solve giant systemic problems like climate? This is Behind the Money from the Financial Times. I'm Manuela Zaragoza. In this episode, the second in our series on environmental, social and governance or ESG issues, with the help of FT Correspondents and the FT Moral Money team, we're asking what it takes for a business to marry profit and purpose. Can any business do both, make money while leaving the world in a better place? Larry Fink, CEO of the world's biggest asset manager, BlackRock, thinks so. He says profits and purpose are inextricably linked. The involvement in a community to have a purpose is vital for long-term survivability, but long-term profitability. And he's not alone. Evan Williams, the founder of Twitter and Medium, says he's puzzled by the dichotomy some see between profit and purpose. But Auden's light bulb story suggests it's, well, complicated. So... Is Auden's story typical? We'll come back to him a little later. First, Exhibit A. Danone. 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 Danone Sauton. Every day, we strive to live up to the values that lie behind this very first yogurt. Danone, the French company that at one point claimed to have killed off this idea that the only purpose of business was to make money. Danone is this emblematic company in France where their products are kind of all over every grocery shelf in the supermarket here. Uh, And it's also just sort of a beloved brand of of the French. Leila Aboud is the FT's Paris correspondent. But it's also a global company that's present all over the world. They sell baby formula in China, Evian water all over the world, and brands in yogurt. So the way that Procter & Gamble in the US is an emblematic company and Unilever in the UK is emblematic, Danone is sort of that household name in France. But Danone also has a long history of trying to do the right thing in its business operations. The character and sort of soul of Danone has always been anchored around these values, which we now call ESG. That corporate culture, it dates as far back as the 60s and 70s. France, May 1968, a nation of strikes, of violence. The height of France's countercultural revolution. The simmering of unrest amongst its student population rapidly. Student and workers' protests had brought the country to a standstill. Just a few years later, Danone was on board too. The CEO of Danone at the time was one of the first members of the so-called business establishment who came out with this very famous speech sort of saying the responsibility of companies does not end at the factory gate. They have a greater responsibility to society, to employees, to the environment. It's this very kind of progressive message. A progressive message which some 40 years later would continue to be embraced by a new CEO at the company. Thank you for coming and please let's welcome Monsieur Emmanuel Faber. Emmanuel Faber was appointed in 2014, and he certainly didn't talk like many other CEOs. Money, I have met so many people when I was an investment banker. So many people that are just prisoners of the money that they've earned. Never get slave to money. He's an interesting hybrid of a sort of classic CEO and an activist. He comes in to run the company and make it more profitable for shareholders. That's like his main mission, right? But He's going to do it in his own way. He knows how the markets work and he knows how to sort of talk to investors. He's not some sort of like hippie 
person who hates shareholders. That's not who this guy is. So Leila, how exactly did Emmanuel Faber do things in his way? On the activist side of things, he starts to do things like sourcing milk in a more responsible way. So Danone buys a lot of milk from farmers. He started working with those farmers to try and get them to use more sustainable uh, agricultural practices with their cows. Obviously, cows are a source of uh, methane gas. And there's all these things you can do to make your farm sort of less carbon dioxide uh, intensive, treat the cows better, etc. Then early last year in 2020, Faber went further. He introduced a carbon-adjusted earnings per share metric. It exposed the financial cost of Danone's carbon emissions so that investors could better understand the company's environmental impact. And this is not something that companies usually do, obviously. So he basically said, I'm going to pretend that there is this carbon tax or this price of carbon, which many advocates think would be a good solution to help companies reduce their emissions. And I'm going to pretend we had to pay it every year. And I'm going to adjust our profit down based on that number. It's a pretty radical thing for a a corporate CEO to do. The thing to bear in mind here is that there was no legal obligation, no government regulation that said Danone had to do this. It was entirely voluntary. But a few months later in 2020, Emmanuel Faber went even further. He wanted Danone's legal status changed. Danone, no longer just any company, but an entreprise à mission, a purpose-driven company. It was a new legal corporate framework in France, and Danone's purpose would be, in its words, to bring health through food. Notre raison d'être établie depuis 2005 est d'apporter la santé par l'alimentation au plus grand nombre. La santé, health, but in the broadest possible terms. Not just the health of Danone's customers, but that of the entire planet. Shareholders voted overwhelmingly in favor. That means your board actually has a legal responsibility to make sure that you're delivering against that mission, right? Which is very different. Like usually, what is the responsibility of a board to its shareholders? It's to make sure that the company is following its fiduciary duty to shareholders, which is a fancy word that means the company's obligation to make money for its shareholders. It adds another thing to that mission. So they can, under this framework, a company can say, okay, closing this factory might be good for my shareholders because it's going to increase my profits, but it would be bad for my workers. So I'm not going to do it, even though it's going to make me more money. It's that kind of reflection. It's a way for companies to kind of be, think more broadly than just about making money. And it's a way to make that actually have legal power. It was a triumphant moment for Emmanuel Faber. You have toppled the statue of Milton Friedman here today, he told the known shareholders, referring to the renowned American economist and spiritual mentor of many an entrepreneur. In 1970, Friedman had written a famous essay arguing that the social responsibility of business was to increase profits. Commentators speculated, was that way of thinking now dead? There were plenty who thought so. Only a year earlier, in 2019, Paul Polman, the former CEO of one of Danone's big competitors, Unilever, had launched a foundation called Imagine. It groups dozens of corporate executives with a mission to tackle climate change and global poverty. That's them singing at Imagine's launch. But Emmanuel Faber would be walking to an entirely different tune. With a major leadership shakeup at one of the world's top multinational food companies based here in Paris. That's right. The board of yogurt giant Danone has ousted Emmanuel Faber from his post as 
both CEO and board chairman, that under pressure from activist investor groups. The day that Faber got fired, it was really interesting to look on Twitter because basically you could see all these people who are from the environmental world, activists, labor activists even, were mourning on Twitter kind of the loss of the CEO who they felt was really one of their main advocates for their movement uh, in business. Once the dust had settled, it turned out the story was more complicated. Tensions had grown between the CEO and the board of directors, including over Faber's management style and Danone's performance. Several months after his ouster and following months of silence, Faber spoke to Leila and other FT correspondents. It's not very typical for a CEO to, to come out, or former CEO at the time, to give that kind of interview on the gory details of, of what happened in the boardroom. It's pretty rare. But I think it's telling that he wanted to put a stake in the ground and say, hey, you know, my activism is not why I got pushed out. At the time, the press was full of headlines portraying Faber's departure as a warning to other CEOs who seemed to prioritize purpose over profit. For me, the thing I find most interesting about the whole thing is that it's really a how people see Faber's departure at the known. It's like a real Rorschach test. Like people either saw it as, of course, he was fired because he was too green. That's so obvious. We don't even need to discuss it. Uh, and then other people really saw it as like, well, no, I mean, it's just because the business was doing badly and he didn't do his job as on the basics, right? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. The fact is, profit-wise, Danone had been trailing its competitors and then the COVID pandemic hit. And it's really only active in three businesses, bottled water, baby formula and specialized nutrition, and the dairy. The water falls off a cliff because when nobody leaves their houses, you don't buy bottles of water on the go. And that business just really, really takes a quite bad hit. So does the baby formula for a separate reason, which is just you know fewer people having babies in Asia. Danone's share price was falling. Meanwhile, a group of shareholders who'd been unhappy with the company's performance and Faber's leadership for over a year now grew more vocal. Danone's board was increasingly under pressure. And this is never good for a CEO. Something had to give. And in this case, the board gave up Faber. But when Faber spoke to the FT team, he was above all adamant on one point. The entreprise mission has never been, never in this uh, matter, uh, the real fundamental topic. In English, the excuse, let's put it this way, ESG was the excuse that people found to play this uh, game. Faber himself uh, doesn't want to be put in that category of like martyr for ESG. What then is the ESG takeaway from the Danone story? Well, I think that Danone has become a poster child for people who think that ESG is a bubble or simply wrong-headed. I think that's not really quite true in the case of Danone. Gillian Tett is the FT's editor-at-large and co-founder of Moral Money, the FT team that covers the world of socially responsible business and sustainable finance. I think what really caused the corporate reshuffle was a clash of personalities. And it's quite striking that since Emmanuel Faber left, 
um, the company has not actually walked away from the previous ESG commitments for the most part. Um, it continues to uphold those. But what the whole saga does show is that ESG is not a magic wand. It doesn't suddenly make a CEO who's got big personality clashes or problems with his management style turn them into somehow a saint or a genius. The, the whole unknown story, did it have a chilling effect on uh, ESG efforts at other companies? The unknown story has shown many corporate leaders that they need to make sure that they're taking the rest of the board with them when they start crafting an ESG strategy and explain it clearly to the investor base as well. A key point here, ESG strategies certainly seem to be working out just fine at Danone's competitors. So these conversations are not new in consumer goods. They're happening all over the place. Now, a company like Nestle, which is highly successful in the past few years because it has a CEO who's come in and done a turnaround, they have quite similar plastics cutting pledges, emissions pledges as Danone, but their share price has only gone up. It's not really provoked crises anywhere else, right? Which backs up this idea, you know, that maybe there was something a little bit more complex going on at Danone than just the classic narrative of mean investors, nasty board, nice CEO. And yet, clearly, plenty of business leaders do struggle to navigate the tangle of nice and nasty, of responsibility to stakeholders and profit, if you like. Remember Auden Schendler, who we left trying to change a few light bulbs in a luxury ski hotel? He was having a nightmare, and he didn't even have to win over investors. Well, we're privately held, so we don't have to face those issues. But I will say that our ownership cares about climate. The hotel manager was never going to make the switch voluntarily. I had to do it by essentially going to the CEO and saying, you hired me to do sustainability, right? But I can't even do the most basic thing here. I need some help. And so we forced the project through, which was not a popular thing. It didn't make me a hero uh, to the hotel manager. His takeaway, it's that doing ESG stuff and making money is way more complicated than it might seem from CEOs giving neat sound bites. When you use voice, when you stand up on the need for climate action, it's controversial. You get hate mail. You get trolled on social media. These days, Auden has added to his workload. He's still overseeing sustainability at Aspen Skiing, but he's also a climate activist whose musings on the subject have appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers. And he's since also come to another more depressing conclusion. Most recently, last year, I was riding my bike. Uh, often in our business, you can take a lunch break and go on a, a road bike ride up in the hills. And I was riding and the, the idea of complicity came into my head. And I realized that corporate sustainability is conventionally practiced, which means greening your operations and taking blame for your carbon footprint is complicit with a carbon economy created by the fossil fuel industry. So you're saying what really needs to change is not this kind of changing of light bulbs, that's all tinkering at the edges. Basically, what needs to happen is systemic change, which means it has to be political. Right. There's a problem that a lot of these high-profile and well-managed corporations like big tech, they profess to care about climate change. They speak about it but only in terms of their own operations. They don't speak politically. They don't call for climate policy. 
changing light bulbs, reducing carbon footprint, um, carbon reporting, all those things. Yeah, those are great. Now, would you like to talk about how to address climate change? Because those things don't do it. Auden points to the fact that decades of corporate sustainability haven't moved the needle on global carbon emissions, and we're running out of time to make a difference. But in the meantime, corporate executives still have to have an ESG story to tell. Consumers of the products they make and investors demand it. Back to the FT's Leila Aboud in Paris. Maybe in 10 years' time when we have more tools like climate-adjusted EPS or there's more regulation, you know, maybe there's going to be regulation about forcing companies to cut their carbon emissions. We don't have any of that now. We're in a transition period where people are talking about ESG all the time and companies are trying to do stuff. But collectively, shareholders still expect them to just sort of also do their day job, which is to make money and have the share price go up. We're in this transition period. CEOs have to do both. You're going to have to walk and chew gum at the same time if you're a CEO. In the next episode, the corporate board that tried to push back on that, how a small group of activist investors staged what some called the equivalent of a coup d'etat at an oil and gas behemoth. Nobody had heard of this small engine number one hedge fund. And it was ExxonMobil, which is just this huge, powerful, storied American corporate giant. But what exactly did it change? I agree that Exxon is still pumping oil and gas. We never in any of our communications said we expected overnight change. But if you look at the long-term trajectory of the energy transition, decisions do matter. You can read more from Leila Aboud and more about ESG investing from Gillian Tett and the rest of the Moral Money team at FT.com. And I've included some links in the show notes. And as a listener to FT Podcasts, why not sign up for a 30-day free subscription to the FT's premium Moral Money newsletter? It includes complimentary access to FT.com for the same period. Head to FT.com slash Inside ESG to sign up. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui, with additional support from Josh Gabert-Doyon and Alice Fordham. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. We had editorial direction from Rene Kaplan, and our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. I'm Manuela Saragossa. Join me next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.